You know, it's, it's interesting, when, I, um, when I'm preaching, uh, which is most weeks, right? So I'm, I'm studying passages throughout the week, and I'm always looking for those opportunities that the Lord might give me throughout the week to do something in, in my week, in my life, that would, um, that would help me to apply what I'm, what I'm learning in my own life so that I can come and preach to you with some sense that, that, um, that God's really been working on me through the passage. And I think that's a biblical way to, to approach preaching. You know, in Ezra chapter 7, Ezra says that he, 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 he studied the Word of God, he applied it, and then he taught it. That's, that's a model that I want to follow after as well. Um, anyway, I'm saying all this to say that some weeks that happens in, in greater ways than others. This particular week happened to be a week where I felt like every single day this week, something was going on, either in my own life or, or more likely in the conversations that I was having with, with some of you or situations that were happening this week where this text just kept being centrally applicable. And I think that's because this text is centrally applicable every week of our lives. There's something here that, that Paul has to say to us that, that we, need to, we need to hear it and we need to understand it for what it is. If, if God is to speak to you through this text this morning in the way that, that He's been revealing it uh, to me this week, and I can say with confidence, this is going to be a very, very helpful sermon for you. Very helpful. And I've titled the message Something Worth Living For as a tip to kind of help you think about why this and how this can be very helpful to you. Because that's a question that I think people ask all the time. Is there something worth living for? What is it? And how? This text answers that question. It answers it for Paul. It answers it for all of us who are in Christ. A couple of ways, by the way, that there is something worth living for. So look back down at the text. I'm going to start by looking at the end of chapter, or excuse me, the end of verse 18. If your Bible is like mine, it's broken that last part of verse 18 into a new sentence, a new paragraph. And, and, uh, and go through, uh, verse 20 to 21. Um, and, and this is the, the first point that I want to, to highlight here that I think Paul is telling us. It's that Christ is the source and the substance of our lives. Now I'm going to qualify that one step further. Christ is the source and the substance of our beautifully difficult lives. Before I read again what he says there, I want to remind you of where Paul is, what's going on in Paul's life, what is it, what's, what's the context for what he's saying here? Remember, he's in jail. Okay? So, so things are difficult for Paul right now. He's in jail. He's in jail because he's been proclaiming the gospel in the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, to say that there's another king, another lord, other than Caesar, other than the emperor, is going to get you arrested. But because he's convinced that there is a king, Jesus, who must be proclaimed, he's, he's thrown in prison. But that's obviously a difficult situation. You can imagine what it would be like. Maybe some of you have experienced that, to be in jail. 
it's certainly a not only difficult situation, but it's a shameful situation. And so he's writing this letter to the Philippian church really as a thank you letter to them because they were really the only church that had fully supported him as he's going throughout these trials. He's been on these missionary journeys and even as he's been imprisoned, this is a church that's continued to send him encouragement, continued to send him people to, to encourage him, to pray for him, and to encourage him with financial support. I mean, they have, they've, not, they've stuck by him throughout this difficult trial. And they are experiencing a trial of their own in a couple of ways. One, their beloved church planter and pastor Paul is in prison. So that shame falls back on them too. And that sadness falls back on them too. There's also, because of his absence, there was, there was some opportunity for some, some stuff to happen in the church that needed some leadership and wasn't getting all the leadership that it needed. And so there was some conflict happening in the church. There was some division in the church. So Paul's writing this letter to them to, to help them deal with that, to remind them that even though situation's not great, at least on paper, that God is good, that God is in control, right? That God is at work in all of this. And listen to again what he says to them as a follow-up to all of this circumstantial stuff that's going on. He says again, end of verse 18, Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So catch this. As Paul writes this thank you note to the Philippians, he's encouraging them with something that's, that's hugely significant here. He's saying through your prayers, through this support that you've given, and a specific kind of support that's so helpful, you're praying for me. And therefore, the Holy Spirit is at work in here and the Holy Spirit is helping. Something extraordinary is happening. In the midst of all this difficulty, it's turning out for my deliverance. Now, what's so significant about that is that this deliverance that he's talking about is not deliverance from prison. He's not talking about just simply getting out of jail. It's something way more important than that. He's he's talking about a deliverance that means my exoneration or my full vindication, not before Caesar necessarily, but before God. All of this is happening for my deliverance, for my salvation, for, for my exoneration and vindication before the Lord, whether by my life, if I keep living, or whether I die. That's how I know it's not about deliverance from just jail. I can live, I can die, no matter what. All this is working for this deliverance. So what I think he's saying here is, he's expressing this desire that he has to be found faithful. This this desire that he has to walk closely with Jesus, to live faithfully for Jesus, so that he can stand before Jesus and hear Jesus say to him on the judgment day, 
Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the deliverance. That's the vindication that he's looking for. And the proof of this desire is found here in verse 20 when he says that it's his eager anticipation that this will happen. The word translated as eager expectation there is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's in Romans 8 where Paul talks about the expectation, the eager expectation of all of creation, fallen, broken creation, as it's groaning for its final redemption. So it's that same kind of expectation that he has. He's looking to that final redemption. And this word ashamed here, I'm not going to be ashamed, he says. That derives from key passages like Isaiah 28.16, quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10 when he says things like this. He who believes in Him, in Jesus, will not be ashamed. Which is a shame that has to do again with eternal judgment, not just temporary guilt. So where am I going with all this? What, 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 I'm, what I'm trying to say is that what Paul is saying is that the difficult stuff that he's been going through has been used by God. Through their prayers, through the Spirit's work in Paul's life, it's been used by God to do this. To teach him and to produce in him things of eternal value. He's saying, this is the stuff that's making me a better Christ follower. This is the stuff that's forming me in such a way that when I appear before the Lord one day, I will appear before Him as a man who's more sanctified, who's more faithful, who's more identified with Christ in His sufferings than had I not been through any of this difficulty. And that, for Paul, is reason to say, I rejoice. Regardless, by the way, of what happens to me in this jail cell, whether I get out or not, whether I continue to live or whether I don't, I rejoice in knowing that God is using this for my good. And he defends this statement by telling them what it is that he's learned through all of this in verse 21. He says, For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. And that's where I came up with my idea for the title of my first point when I said this word, these words, beautifully difficult life. Beautifully difficult. What, what I mean by beautifully difficult is where there's loss when we experience loss for the sake of Christ. And I think you've, if you're a believer, I think you know what that's like. To experience loss for the sake of Christ. Sometimes by decisions that you make in order to follow Christ, in order to honor Christ, I'm going to, I'm going to make a decision that's going to cost me something, right? So you, you choose that loss. Sometimes, though, you have no choice in the matter whatsoever. Simply by nature of the fact that you are a follower of Christ, there are costs, unforeseen costs, difficult costs that you experience the loss 
When you might say, I didn't or wouldn't have wanted to have chosen that loss. But either way, there's loss for the sake of Him. Loss of relationship sometimes. Loss of comfort. Maybe loss of income. Certainly loss of ideals and expectations that you might have had about the way your life was going to look. Maybe painful losses like the loss of home. And yet, in those moments, I hope you can say, like Paul can say, you've experienced Christ meets you there. Like that, that loss had purpose. It wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't God trying to just be somehow cruel to you in any way. But in fact, you could look back and say, that was the very means by which I got Christ. Because something was stripped away from me or, or something was made clear to me in a way that it wouldn't have been otherwise where I could finally see that, that Jesus is maybe all that I really have to hold on to. And when Jesus is all that I have to hold on to, I can find Him to be incredibly sweet and incredibly satisfying. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. So he's saying there's this, there's this beautiful difficulty in life and when we, when we find that, when we experience Christ in that, we recognize that to live then as a believer in a difficult world means we're going to gain Christ. You know, I, I used to read this. I think I've always read this by inserting a kind of a, a comma into that sentence for me to live as Christ, I think, we, I think most of us have put this imaginary comma in the same place. And that's to, to say this, for me, comma, to live as Christ. Now, there's not really a comma there, right? But I think that's the way we've often read it. For me, to live as Christ, as if to say, you know, this is really living. And I think that's a right way to interpret that, but I don't think that's actually where Paul would place the comma. I think where he would place the comma is to say, for me to live, comma, is Christ. In other words, for me to not die, but to keep on living. For me to live, Christ. And there's actually no is in the Greek there either. There's no verb there. It just says, for me to live, Christ. So I think what he's saying there is Christ is the source and substance of my life. He's the source of my life. He's the substance of my life to live Christ. And when we experience that in our own lives, when we're, when we're, when we're finding even going through suffering, which we will do if we're identifying with Christ, and we find that there's nothing left to hold on to but Him. When we are, so to speak, all in for Jesus, we too can not only eagerly look forward to the, 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 the final day when we can stand before Him and He'll say to us, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the what? 
the joy of your inheritance. We can say that, but we also can say we get more of Jesus today. By living this life, as difficult as it is, the beauty of that difficulty is to keep living it means we're going to experience more of Christ. That's a radical understanding for us as believers. This becomes a, a valuable test of our lives. For, for us to, to, to say, for me to live is Christ is a radical departure from the things that we have so often said and we said before we came to know Him about what it means to, to A, live, and to be to gain. If for me to live is material possessions, then to die is to leave it all behind. If for me to live is popularity and fame and attention and accolade, then to die is to be forgotten. If for me to live is beauty, it's the way I look, it's to find my identity and my security and my appearance, then to die is to shrivel up and rot. If for me to live is partying, to die is to have a funeral. I could go on filling in those blanks, right? But we, we, we're being shown here by Paul, no, there's, a, there's a whole different... It's a whole different perspective here for the believer. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. If we're going to have joy regardless of our circumstances, because it's through those circumstances, the difficult ones even, that we're able to share in the sufferings of Christ, to be identified with Christ, and therefore, like Paul, share in the furtherance of the Gospel, Know that we're going to grow in a, in a Christ-filled godliness that's going to lead to this eager expectation of our final vindication before God. Then we have to go all into this idea that, you know what, life is beautifully difficult. It's not just difficult. It's beautifully difficult. Because for us to live is Christ. And to die is gain. That's the Lord's definition of life. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Now, I want to keep fleshing this out because I, I think this, this next point here helps us understand more of what it means that Paul can say to live is Christ. And it's the, the, my second point is this. It's a question. How should Christians view death? If to live is Christ... He says to die is gain. What does that mean? How are we to view death? Do we view it as gain? And what does that mean? Or do we view it as an escape? Look back down at the text. Verse 21 again. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, in other words, I'm going to either stay in this prison or I'm going to get out of prison. And I'm going to keep living this life. He says, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, 
Which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Right? So he's got this, this thought process that's going on. I think these are really interesting verses. What he's saying here is both profound and I think entirely relatable. He's genuinely torn between this desire to keep on living and this desire to die, which for him would mean to go and be with Jesus face to face. He says, I'm hard pressed between these two. This is not just mental musing on his part. He's, he's kind of, he's really wrestling with that tension. Hard pressed between the two literally means I'm in straits over this. All right? So this is genuine emotional turmoil for Paul as he wrestles with this. Now, having said that, I want to make clear because he makes this clear that his desire for death is not rooted in depression. Okay? It's not rooted in depression. He's not contemplating death as an escape from life. He's not suicidal. He doesn't have a a morbid death wish here. If we were to interpret this text in that way, that would be wrong. Because that's not where he's coming from. However, having said that, I think there's a necessary application for us in actually thinking about those kinds of morbid death wishes for a moment. Because they're common. They're common. A lot of people in difficulty, in moments of depression, in moments of despair, contemplate death as an escape. I read this just this week. The suicide rate in America over the past 20 years has jumped over 40%. Which means this, in real numbers, we've lost approximately a half million people to suicide in this country alone since 1999. That just says something about how we view often death as an escape, right? That, that, that's not putting any judgment on those who've committed suicide. There's lots of different reasons and mindsets at play when people do that, right? But I think the, the consistent thread in there is that there's a sense in which escape is better, right? That's why they make that choice. And to say again that this is common isn't just a statistical thing that's sort of out there. The reality is I can't tell you how many times, honestly, I don't think I can tell you how many times I've heard people say something like, I just want to die. Or, things would be better if I just wasn't here. And when I say I've heard that countless numbers of times, I mean in very recent days. So if, if, if you, please hear this, if you're experiencing thoughts like these, listen to what the Lord through Paul has to say to us here. Because him talking about dying as gain is very different than that. Gain and escape are two different things. Paul is not lamenting or despairing of life What Paul is doing here, he's actually rejoicing in Christ. He's not saying, 
To live is despair and to die is escape from the pain. What he's saying is to live is Christ. And to die for the believer means more of Christ. I'm rejoicing in that whether I live or whether I die, in different ways, I'm going to experience more of Christ. Christ is the source and the substance of my life. That's an evidence of, of, of true joy. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, there's no bad options for me. They're very different options. Living in this life, continue to live in this life, in the circumstances that I'm in, it's hard. But it's beautifully hard because that's where I get more of Christ. And if I die, well, I mean, hey, I just get more of Christ, right? There's no bad options for me. They're very different, but they're both good. That's why he says here, there's only fruitful labor for me if I keep on living. There's, there's labor, but it's fruitful. There's blessings from God. So what's the tipping point for him? As he's kind of weighing this out, this desire on the one hand to, to, to yeah, go to heaven sounds pretty good, but this tension about whether or not he's to keep on living, even in the difficulty. What's the tipping point? The tipping point for him is what he says next. It's his recognition that life, this beautifully difficult life, has meaning and purpose. Our purpose, he's going to show us, is in living to benefit others. Look at verse 24. So again, remember at the end of verse 23, he's saying, I'm hard-pressed. My desire is to be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh, he says, to keep living is more necessary on your account, church. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So he's saying this. He's saying, I'm recognizing this and I want you to recognize this. My present life will continue as long as God has a purpose for me to keep bringing Him glory in this present life. That's the secret, by the way, to... Joy in the Christian life as opposed to falling into despair when things don't go the way that you thought they were going to go. It's this knowledge that God has a purpose. He's got a purpose in it. He's got a purpose for your life. And you understand that that purpose ultimately is not about you, but about Him and His glory. Your ultimate purpose and your ultimate joy are found in recognizing that this life that I'm living is for His glory and that's where I'll find my ultimate joy because I gain more of Christ. If Paul's released from prison, he has this real sense and purpose of other-centered ministry to focus on. That's why I'm going to keep on living, he's convinced. Because I've still got ministry to do. He knows then that as he continues in the ministry, even though it's going to potentially bring more trial, more suffering, more difficulty, it will also bring more joy 
in Christ. Because not only is Christ meeting him in his own suffering, but he's expanding on his joy by helping the Philippians to gain progress in their faith, to grow in their own joy in Christ, resulting in more glory being given to Jesus Christ because he's got continued ministry happening in their lives. I think this is really cool. Paul's been talking a lot as we've been looking at Philippians over the last couple weeks about the keys to finding joy. And again, to recap where we've been, he's saying, look, we find joy in seeing that God uses everything. God's always at work, even our difficult circumstances, and He's at work because He's advancing the Gospel through those in ways that we may not see even in the moment, but He's at work. And further, He uses those difficult things in us to drive us further and further into Christ. You gain Christ as you identify in those sufferings. And you cling to nothing but Him. But then He completes the, the, the fullness of this joy by adding one more thing here. He says, joy, more of Christ is also found in doing what's best for others. Especially in the church. He's saying, look, my my hopes for my my own immediate future here don't hinge on the bliss of me immediately dying and going on to glory, nor do they hinge on escaping the pains of prison or a death sentence. Rather, they hinge on thinking about what's best for you How can my life be continually used for your benefit? My brothers and my sisters in the church. My brothers and my sisters in Philippi. That's a a pretty remarkable thing. I want you to think about that for just a moment. How often do you evaluate your options in life by thinking about what's best for you? As opposed to what's... As a first principle, by the way, thinking about what's best for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I've had a lot of conversations over the last couple weeks of people asking legitimate questions about why is this thing happening? Why is this difficult thing happening? Where is God in all this? What's He doing in all this? This is not what I wanted to happen. This is not my ideal for the way life should be going right now. Second Corinthians 1 says something to us in those moments. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. In other words, as you keep living in those sufferings, Christ. More Christ. More comfort in those afflictions. But also so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. See what he's saying there? There's a reason why you're going through what you're going through, and it's bigger than just you. A, 
Yes, you're going to meet Christ in those sufferings. You will gain the comfort and the peace of Christ as, as he meets you in those things. But at the same time, you're now equipped in a unique way to be used in somebody else's life when they go through that problem, when they go through that trial. And therefore, there's purpose and meaning for you to continue in this, to know that God is now working in it and will continue to be working in it as long as He keeps you alive. This, um, this brings up a, a good application question for us. When we hear of other people suffering in the church when we hear the troubles that other people are going through are we proactive to step into those especially if you hear of somebody who's going through something that you have gone through and you've seen god work in that situation in your life are we proactive to step in to those other situations and say how can i help you how can i care for you or even at the at the very minimum because not everybody wants you to come in and, and fix their problems. I think a lot of people know that you may not be able to fix anything, but at a very minimum to just say, I'm praying for you. I'm aware. I'm here. I had, I had a conversation this week with a church member who was asking that question. They were explaining some difficulty that they were going through and and they were saying how, you know, I've, I've shared this with some others in the church. And in the moment that I shared it, you know, I, I got, I felt supported. I felt heard. But after the fact, I, I, I didn't hear anything from anybody. Um, and I think they were kind of asking the question, like, are we, like, as a church, are we really caring well for one another? Which is a fair question to ask. Um, so, okay, let's hear that, right? Let's hear that. And, the, and then after the conversation that we had, and I, and I had opportunity to talk about this passage with them, I got an email from them and they, they just had some thoughts that I, I wanted to share with you because they encouraged me to share them in, as I was thinking about the sermon. These were their thoughts. They says, Jesus has so identified Himself with His people that when they are in need, in a mysterious sense, He really is identified with them. As he said, for as many of you did or didn't do this, for the least of these, my brothers, you did or didn't do it for me. That means that when we enter willingly into other believers suffering with them, we're literally taking on that fellowship of sharing in Jesus' suffering. So serving one another in their pain is a way we get more of Jesus. If we saw others' needs as Jesus' needs, wouldn't our mindset be, how can I not serve them? What do I need to do or to give up in order to help them? Conversely, if we say we're just too overwhelmed by how many problems there are, or too busy or too overwhelmed with our own problems, and use those as reasons why we won't help, we're really saying, Jesus just has too many problems. If He helped me more, I would help Him more. And so we give up being with and helping Jesus in His need, thinking that reading our Bibles and praying will be good enough for our relationship with Him today. Our love or lack of active love for the brothers and sisters is the litmus test for our love or lack of love for Jesus. Those are just bullet points that they sent me in this email. I thought, those are 
helpful thoughts, right? To say that we live for the benefit of others in the church not only helps us evaluate our own sufferings, but I would say it should also help us evaluate everything that we do. Everything that we do. Let's say you're faced with a job offer that might take you away, take you to another city, or maybe an enticement to move to a different place because, again, living in the city can be expensive or living in the city can be hard, right? You've got a growing family and you've got to consider all those things. Those are, those are real considerations. Maybe you're considering another church, not because of any reason associated with the failure of the Gospel in one place or the other, but simply because it fits your preferences better than the one that you're currently at where God has called you to serve and build relationships. Do you ask yourself these questions? Do I make financial decisions with the church in mind? Do I make family decisions with the church in mind? Do I make any decisions with the church in mind? Those are just some application questions to think about. And I'm not saying that the decisions that you make uh, are necessarily the issue. We're going to make different decisions about different things. I think the point is, like Paul, are we saying, when I'm considering the big things in my life, am I considering my call to bless and benefit the body of Christ? Is that coming into my consideration? There's a self-denial that's involved. There's a self-denial that's motivated by the spiritual good of the body of Christ that God has called you into. He's placed you into. And it's good. And in that self-denial, we get more of Christ. And that's what Paul displays here. He sets aside his own desires for the good of the church. And that's where he finds his joy. Even in the midst of some difficult circumstances. So to kind of put a bow on this, this is, this is the Word of God, right? God is speaking to us through these words of Paul. And so I could say with confidence here, God is defining this pursuit of joy that He's been He's been, he's been leading us towards throughout Philippians so far as this. He's saying it's, it's walking by faith in the secure knowledge that God is good, right? That God is always in control. Joy is the settled and un- unwavering belief that a very good God is always in control. And, therefore, He has a purpose for your life. He has a purpose for your life. You may not know yet what it is, but here's how you can find it. Not in by looking to do what you think is best for you, but by giving of yourself to the people that God has placed in your life, namely the church, and say, God, help me to to gain more of Christ in the beautiful difficulties of this life and use that for the benefit of others. You can serve in ministry. Formal or informal, right? 
You can find your purpose in that ministry and you can rejoice because you're part of the growth and the sanctification of others as you lovingly help them go all in for Jesus. And by the way, the Gospel advances outside the church when it's advancing inside the church. So let's recap our God-given definitions this morning. What's, what is life? It's Christ. It's, it's, it's going all in for Him. It's, it's every circumstance lends us uh, or excuse me, leads us to more and more of Jesus. It's a perspective that sees that and believes that and rejoices in that. And therefore, what is death? Death is something to, to look forward to as the fulfillment of gaining more of Christ, but it's not an escape. It's not an escape to be pursued. What's to be pursued is your purpose. The fulfillment of gaining Christ through the local church, through the serving of others, through the rejoicing in making other people joyful in Christ. Our, our, we live in a very individualistic society that has lost that sense of God-given joy because we've tried to make things about ourselves. We've tried to define these things for ourselves. But as we see here in the passage this morning, it's not about you. It's about the glory of God. It's about the advancement of the Gospel. It's about the betterment of others. And it comes in denying ourselves. Even to the point of suffering, because it's there, again, that we become empty vessels ready to be filled up with Christ. So that we can say, to live is Christ. Father, thank You for this helpful passage. I pray that You'd help us to apply that this, this week, and, and ongoingly, Lord. We are so surrounded by trial and difficulty. We're so surrounded by pains and hurts and, and longings and unfulfilled expectations and and Lord, because of that, I know how easy it is for us to slip into despair. How easy to slip into a depression. How easy to slip into the desire for an escape. So I pray, Lord, that however my brothers and sisters in this room may encounter those kinds of thoughts this week or those kinds of experiences this week, would You remind them that it is because that they are there by Your good, sovereign grace experiencing what they're experiencing that that's where they gain Christ. And would You remind them, Lord, that we have a hope to know that it's not always going to be that way. We will, we will gain Christ now, but we'll gain Him more when we get to glory and Your good time and Your good pleasure, but to not view death as, as an escape now. Help us to live now for You. And help us to do that primarily by pouring ourselves out for others. Help us to say, no, there's meaning and purpose in this life. It's not just about me. Give us the strength to do that. And give us the joy when we do of gaining more of Christ. Thank You that You do that. Thank You that we have Him. Thank You that we can say, Alleluia. All I have is Christ and Jesus is my life. We pray that in His name. Amen.